This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jasran Nam. And this is uh, Jamal Dejani. And uh, welcome to our listeners and our viewers from all over the world, from here in the Bay Area, throughout the United States, to Palestine and beyond. Uh, welcome to another episode of Arab Talk from quarantined Northern California, shelter in place, uh, Jess and Jamal's, uh, you know, remote studio. Jamal, um, the statistics on the coronavirus continue to look grim. And uh, as of the start of our show today, we have close to 5 million worldwide cases noted, and we are at 330,000 worldwide deaths. In the U.S., we're hitting some grim milestones with one one and a half million people, you know, being diagnosed with the coronavirus. And we're at the milestone now of close to 94,000 uh, Americans having perished and lost their lives to the coronavirus. Those numbers are probably uh, grossly underestimated. And Jamal, we're at a very interesting point right now, obviously, because all 50 states have decided to reopen to some extent. Some states like Alaska, like Texas, like Alabama are opening at a more accelerated rate. Other states like California, New York, New Jersey, and, and Maryland and Virginia are opening up a little bit more slowly and cautiously. So I think the next two to three to four weeks, Jamal, will reveal itself to be a very, very critical time that will tell us and uh, policymakers and hopefully politicians will listen where we're headed. My own opinion is that uh, we're headed still for some very, very, very rough time. Um, there's still a lot of states that where the, the rates of increase are still uh, climbing, Texas and Alabama. Death rates are increasing. Uh, virus exposure rates are still increasing. And Jamal, this is the uh, Memorial Day weekend, so people are itching to get out. And I don't know if you've seen the pictures that I've seen, but I see a lot of pictures of people not practicing social distancing. So I, for one, am a little concerned about what's going to happen in the next few weeks to a month. Yeah, well, everyone is uh, ready to hit the beaches. And uh, that's, like you said, that's a big weekend, Memorial weekend. And, and, and we've seen the, anyway, we've seen the images of people going to the beach. I don't know how you can uh, protect yourself when when you have crowds uh, around you. But we're going to talk about this, Jess, and, and much more uh, later on in the show. Uh, actually, uh, we've been talking to different people, as you know, f uh, during the past uh, shows. And this show we're dedicating to people who have been doing something at home. And um, our guest, it's going to be very interesting. Our guest is going to be talking about music from his shelter in place. So I call this show uh, Quarantined Music. And, 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 and so our guest is uh, a very well-known Bay Area artist, um, uh, a violinist, uh, virtuoso, uh, George Lamam. Uh, I mean, we've had him on the show before. And Many we've times. Had, we've had him on the show with his uh, colleague, uh, playing the guitar, uh, and uh, <laughs> little did we know then that uh, we're going to be actually hosting him remotely. So uh, let's listen to the interview with uh, George Lamont. We are very fortunate 
to have with us from his shelter in place in Northern California, Arabic violin virtuoso George Lamam, a solo violinist exemplifying the Arab style of instrumental improvisation. His repertoire spans a wide range of Arabic music from classical to contemporary popular songs. Welcome again to Arab Talk, George. I hope that you and your family are in good health. Thank you, Jamal. Uh, yes, we're okay. Everything is fine. Um, and uh, thanks for having me again on your show. Absolutely. Yes. So the last time we've had you on the show was with uh, uh, Gabriel Navia after a tour in uh, Bolivia. And we discussed your latest album, uh, Opus Omnia, and talked about uh, Latin and Arab, uh, and Arab fusion. Little did we know that we will be now talking uh, remotely and, and the whole world uh, will be under lockdown because of uh, COVID-19. So as an artist, how have you been coping with this situation? Well, the first thing is really I miss performing with other musicians. It's uh, the interaction, the laughs, uh, we look at each other and the cues and all this, which is, goes on with, the perform, uh, with performing live. And also, um, I miss also the audience energy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the people what give us from their energy and how we uh, I've been a performer for a long time, so I really miss that a lot. Uh, so, in, in the performing in front of the audience is totally different, uh, different vibe, different feeling for a uh, performer. So you've been experimenting, have you been experimenting? I know uh, we talked earlier briefly and you said you tried to kind of put some sort of a concert online. How did this go? Yeah, there is uh, actually um, this dancer, uh, she lives in uh, uh, close to uh, Stockton. Uh, she has a dance company and uh, she asked me if I will do this Zoom with her, uh, with I wish actual dancers from a different uh, uh, places in the United States, from Arizona, from Southern California, um, and uh, we have eight dancers actually, and we did the Zoom. Uh, so I get also we 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 were three musicians. Uh, we did the, the Zoom uh, in the in the garden of one of the musicians. <laughs> this garden, which of course was distance between us, and um, amazingly actually was successful, and I enjoyed doing it doing it and we have around 380 um, uh, viewers uh, watching live uh, that time and we're planning to do again another uh, another one but what um, uh, it will be probably just a concert and I'm planning to do that uh, via Zoom or via uh, Facebook, uh, live on Facebook. Uh, so there is plans. I also have also another uh, an event planned in uh, San Antonio, Texas. This one is not canceled yet, which is going to be uh, uh, August 1st and 2nd, which is this also another dance company I work with in uh, San Antonio. They said they're going to go ahead and do it, and even if, you, if they have few, fewer um, audience, they're going to also uh, do it on stream, so they, they, they want to do it, because... <laughs> They think they will be ready, especially in Texas by that time. Yeah, well, uh, some some states are relaxing, uh, of course, the uh, the shelter uh, in place laws. Uh, they're different. Uh, of course, we're in the Bay Area. We still, uh, I think, have one of the strictest one, ones around in the country. 
but uh, I want to talk a little bit about your music. So for those who don't know you, I mean, we've we've known each other for many years and you started your career playing traditional Arabic music. Then you started to experiment with other genre. Uh, um, you know, how did this evolve? And do you think, uh, does this have to do with the diversity uh, being, living in the San Francisco Bay Area? Absolutely. So many different musicians, different cultures here. And uh, over uh, 15 years ago, I started exploring other uh, uh, kind of music and meet musicians from different countries. And specifically, I mean, I'm talking about uh, Gabriel Navia, who actually we write together for some of the pieces on, uh, on the, al- the albums before the, we talked about Opus Omnia, which is, was released a um, year and a half ago or something. But I'm doing also another album, uh, which is I've done around uh, three quarters of it. I still have a uh, few pieces to go. And also Gabriel is also in it. It has a mixture of different um, styles. Even as Khaliji style, <laughs> from Khaliji up to uh, to Spanish influence in that recording, and uh, I like creativity. I love uh, creating something new you never heard before. So being in San Francisco helps me a lot with interact with uh, with the other artists from other countries. Yeah, I mean, uh, last time you guys were in the studio, I mean, and you you were amazing just having the two of you. Of course, uh, we cannot do this now. Hopefully this is in the future. Uh, we can do that. Um, and I, I think that you know, that album was released in 2017. You know something? One of still of one of my favorite albums is your like, I think it's your first you, or your earliest Souk Al-Amir. I, I still... <laughs> I, I still love to listen, to listen to this in my car all the time. That's from early 90s, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yes. So uh, I was like thinking, uh, do you care about uh, playing something? Uh, I don't know if, if from something that you've been working on recently or anything you'd like. I mean, our audience would love to hear you. Uh, since uh, I love to please the Arab audience too, remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably I'll play something for uh, for M. Kaltum, maybe improvise and play something with Kaltum, which is uh, this piece everybody knows in the Middle East and uh, the, the Arabs called Wudarat uh, al-Ayyam. Yeah. As, as the days turns, which is very appropriate for <laughs> what we're going on these days. <laughs> so I'll play a little bit uh, of it in the beginning, but this is from Maqam Huzam. Okay. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Beautiful, beautiful, bravo. I mean, this is amazing. I, I think, I think, I mean, we have to adapt. I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, you really need your audience, but it seems like people are adapting a little bit and it's not a bad idea holding like some concerts uh, online. People are just like going crazy, being cooped up. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's sad. Yeah, since uh, I remember, since March 8th, it was my last concert I did. Mm -hmm. uh, two weeks uh, ago, we did that thing on Zoom, uh, the show on Zoom, and uh, hopefully we'll be, uh, we, we're planning one, we're going to schedule another performance, um, maybe in a few weeks, I'm not sure yet, but we will we'll post it uh, on, um, on different uh, places online, and then we, we'll, let, we'll, let, we'll let you know, I'll let also. Yeah, absolutely, we'll be more than happy to announce it and, uh, you know, advertise it and, and sp spread the word. Now, last time we, we also talked about in, during the summer, you were holding like some uh, summer camps and, you know. Yeah, actually, it's... What's in, happening with these? July 11 is... Uh, this is the 30th actual anniversary for this camp, Middle Eastern Music and Dance Camp. And um, I talked to them a few weeks ago. They put it on hold. Mm -hmm. they didn't cancel it because it's a big year for them. Um it's on hold right now because also the parks are uh, um, are closed. All the parks are closed because this is on federal land. It's in Mendocino in the Redwoods. Uh, maybe if they open the uh, the parks are open, they could do it, or maybe they could postpone it for uh, for another uh, date in this year. So we're not sure yet, but it's still postponed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, we talked about this. That seemed to be like a great kind of event, uh, musical event for people coming, young people coming from all over. Yes, it's uh, it's not only and uh, it's Middle Eastern camp. So there's Arabic music, there's Turkish, there's Persian, mm -hmm. well, different kinds. There's uh, faculties of thirty, thirty-five musicians and dancers that come and teach there. It's it's a big camp, a very popular camp, been going for thirty years. So this is a the 30 years anniversary for it this year. 
Uh, earlier, you know, you mentioned, I, I just want to be clear to our audience, you were talking about uh, Arabic maqams. Uh, these are scales, right? Just, uh, just if you can explain a little bit uh, the difference. <laughs> Scale is a mode, and we have so many of them. What I played, that was one of them uh, called Maqam Hussein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and then there is, you know, like with Arabic music, especially with your music, I mean, uh, you constantly change kind of like in the rhythm and you improvise, right? That's kind of part of it is the improvisation aspect. Uh, rhythmic changes uh, within one uh, use of makamat, which is scales. Uh, some of these songs, especially the classic songs, which is 45 minutes, an hour long, yeah, they, the song can go through maybe seven or eight makams and then goes back to the original makam, what, what the song was written from. Uh, improvisation, big part of it. Uh, so you have to know your makams to be able to improvise very well in the, in the Arabic style. Yeah, and then um, you use, of course, uh, traditional Arabic instruments. I know, I mean, uh, the violin is like, uh, it's fairly new compared to the canoon and others, right? The violin is like about a couple of hundred years. Uh, the canoon and the oud and the naya goes, goes back to the centuries. Um, the violin was introduced oh, oh, like over 200 years ago, yeah. Well, they say the violin came from the rabab. <laughs> yeah. The rabab was created first and then traveled to Europe and in Europe they develop it to become a violin and then they traveled back again to the Arab region through the, through the Ottomans, which is 200 years ago. Well, I, listen, I, I think you are a, a gem really for, for, you know, on a global level, but certainly for us in, in, in the Bay Area. Uh, and uh, and we, we miss you and, the, and uh, people can purchase your CDs, uh, where can they get them? On here online or iTunes, uh, Amazon, uh, CD Baby. Um, yeah, there's many sources. Just uh, uh, put my name there and it will appear under different <laughs> different places. Yeah, definitely, George. I mean, and, and I think eventually we'll all get together and we'll have a great concert so we can enjoy uh, your music and everyone else and, and then have this uh, audience interaction. Maybe now it's going to be a little bit changed. There were some changes that people, I don't know. I don't know how, we, how we will, will you feel sitting uh, in front of an audience when everybody's like wearing a mask, for example. <laughs> you can't you can see their facial expression. Even if things open, you know, especially the venues and, uh, and the nightclubs and the concert places, it's going to be hard to get people to come in because people are still scared. But, uh, but I think time, when time uh, passes, it's going to take a while, especially um, when it comes to live performance. Performing. So that's why I'm focusing on, on trying to finish uh, my CD, which is also I still, since also March, I did not record because my engineer and my uh, producer, his... Um, his family doesn't feel comfortable because I work with the home studio. <laughs> his family mm-hmm. kind of a little bit uh, uh, scared still uh, to have anybody come to the house and uh, do recording. But uh, I'm checking with actually my producer every day to see when I'm going to come again. We're working from far away. I record, I record melody on my phone and send it to him. He works on it in studio. He sends it back. And then we're working that way. We, and, but it's nothing like you know going there and... <laughs> to the studio and recording yourself and you work with with all the equipment there, yeah. 
Well, I want to thank you for uh, coming on Arab Talk, even though uh, remotely, and I want you to take us home with anything you want to play. Uh, take our audience, maybe anything you, if you're if you're liking or from your most recent work. Uh, okay, you will uh, you will know this one. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Yeah, things will be better. Yes. <laughs> Well, Jamal, that's the virtuoso Georges Lemam, who's being very creative during the time of shelter in place. And you have to give George and his uh, his group a lot of credit because they've managed to do something very creative, keeping the spirit of their of their music and what they believe in, you know, alive during some very difficult times. So, um, you know, our hats go off to George. Yeah, and then what he said, actually, he, you know, I mean, he, he's still in his creative mode, actually, he's working on, an, on a new album. But he said, the one thing that he misses, and I don't know how this will change very soon, is the audience. And you know that this is the, the audience is the kind of the bloodline for musicians. I mean, uh, he can't perform live, uh, live, he cannot look at the faces of the people, he cannot hear them clapping, cheering on and so forth. So uh, I don't know, um, things are going to change one way or the other. Even, you know, I'm, I'm trying to kind of keep up with all the different things that people are trying to do once uh, things um, open up, like restaurants uh, practicing distancing. As I, I just watched like uh, on, on TV a few minutes ago, a restaurant installing plexiglass tables, like like you, you're going to go into inside a booth, inside a plexiglass bubble, Jess. I mean, is this well, the world we are going to be living in? Yes. And and so let me let me tell you the bad news, Jamal. Yes, this is the world that we're going to be living in for the foreseeable future. And a couple of interesting things related to just what you just said. NASCAR had their first race this past weekend without without an audience. 
And one of the the winner of the the race, uh, I think it was Kevin Harvick, said at the end as they were interviewing, you know, during the race he couldn't tell anything, but it was very weird. He had won the race and there was no cheering. Exactly. And uh, Governor Newsom here in California, for our people who are local, uh, just announced that uh, baseball, football, both college and professional, are going to be able to start practicing again. And we know that there are plans to have these sports start up again in the fall, baseball sooner rather than later, baseball probably July, without uh, without any fans, Jamal. Well, well, the basketball season is not over, right? So right. what are they going to do? They're, they 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 have to finish the season, the playoffs, and then the finals without an audience. Basically, it's going to be without an audience. And I think what you'll hear from the professional athletes is the same thing we heard from Georges Lemam, which is playing without the the energy and the noise and the and the sounds of the crowd is an enormously different experience. But given the nature of the virus and what we know about it and where we're headed, um, it still seems like this is the best and most prudent thing to kind of as a compromise between having sports and athletic activities and other social activities that we're all very fond of, you know, kind of mixed with the reality of the coronavirus, the spread of the virus, and the real possibility, Jamal, that uh, not only is this the new reality for the foreseeable future, but some experts are predicting a rather significant um, reemergence of infections this fall Again, when the flu, we've talked about this, when the flu hits and the coronavirus will probably come back in the fall. This this is kind of important. I mean, um, I read somewhere that because of the shelter in place, this is on one of the medical journals I read, that the number of vaccinations that people are getting for kids, for example, is down significantly. So kids aren't getting vaccinated as much. So this is going to raise some difficulties, you know, when the school year starts, which is also going to be, you know, basically either social distancing or online. The university where you teach, Jamal, has decided, you know, for the next year, basically, that it's going to be all online. So 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 just talking about vaccines, uh, Jess, because you keep hearing about this, and I think there is a major confusion now. Sometimes, you know, you get uh, the media hyping people's hope. Uh, the past week, just watching, there is a disconnect, it seems, uh, uh, between the economy at large, unemployment, which is uh, going to hit 40 million at some point. It's 37 million uh, people unemployed. But yet the stock market has been going up based on the hopes that things are going to open, that the U.S. is going to open and we're going to go back to normal, but also on some companies working on some vaccines, like uh, just a couple of days ago, as you know, Moderna made an announcement that they've made some advances and then its stock just went up the roof. I mean, this is a company that was um, a couple of months ago trading for uh, in the $20 range and, and then it just shot up to about $80. Well, yeah. And then then two days later, they said, well, we have some positive news, but we haven't found the vaccine. And there are others, you know, uh, companies. But so there is that big hyping that we're going to get the vaccine like almost 
it's around the corner. Is that true or is just like up the air? Well, I have to tell you, Jamal, in the last week, one of the most disturbing things that, that I've seen has to do with the irresponsibility of the reporting, number one, from mainstream media, the, the leading report on all of the mainstream media and even the cable news network. The breaking news has been advances and hope for a vaccine. And taking and and basically taking the lead from 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 Donald Trump himself, talking about uh, his warp speed project that will have a vaccine by the end of the year. The this is irresponsible. This is an example of kind of a denial of the process of what it takes to create a vaccine, and then also a denial of science, because for people to be hopeful at this stage about a vaccine is, I'm going to use some strong words, is is really irresponsible and I would say delusional because, you know, number one, you have to go with the FDA, Jamal, the traditional route. You have to go through three phases. The Moderna press release is based on some early phase one studies which showed some remotely good news about the impact of the virus on macaque monkeys. But uh, all, all, all that it said uh, is now they can move to stage two, but yet people acted like as if, it's you know. It's not true. The but discovery it's... is there. But I, 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 wanna, I wanna actually mention Donald Trump and I started like almost shivering to tell you the truth because the other thing that blew my mind is his announcement about taking the hydroxychloroquine uh, I mean, making a public announcement, the president of the United States is taking a drug that is not prescribed for the coronavirus. It's it's a malaria drug. I mean, why would you do something like this? It just doesn't well, like make sense. Well, it's even worse than that, Jamal. So you have the president of the United States taking a drug that the FDA from his own FDA issued an alert saying that hydroxychloroquine can have not just negative consequences, but severe consequences to the point of death because it's it's what we call cardiotoxic. It has toxicity for the heart and for your cardiovascular system. So the FDA has not approved hydroxychloroquine. It's It has serious significant uh, side effect potential if you take it. And it's not approved, obviously, for the coronavirus. So for the president of the United States to get his personal uh, physician to prescribe it for me, that's problematic and enough. But for him to go on TV to announce it means that, number one, he's probably scared. And number two, he's hyping this idea that things are better. It's just I, around I, the corner. I personally like thought it over and I, I could be wrong. But I just don't believe that he's taking it. I feel it's just like a, just for a media circus, because, you know, for Trump, who's a germaphobe, to right. be kind of uh, ingesting some uh, foreign drug that ha has not been proven to be a, a cure. And anyway, he's not, if it is a cure, why take it? Because obviously you've been, uh, you know, you don't have the coronavirus. So this is like like telling me to take like um, you know antiviral drugs for um, some virus like HIV or whatever when I don't have it. Right why, for why preventative. 
Yeah. He, his idea, his idea, Jamal, is that he wants to take it for preventative reasons. It's, it's, it's really, um, it's really irresponsible for him to to say this. Whether or not he's taking it or not is a really good political political point. I will tell you that, as I said, his own FDA came out against it, and the American Medical Association came out with a statement, you know, basically saying this is not encouraged, recommended, people should not take hydroxychloroquine, nor should physicians prescribe it. I just want to say one other quick thing about the vaccines. At the heart of science, Jamal, is you have data that is transparent and that can be replicated. So the the reason I'm concerned about the Moderna results that got everybody happy and was the breaking news all over the world that Moderna has not made the data available for other scientists to independently review, number one. And number two, it's only phase one. We need to get to phase three, and we have to have independent confirmation of the findings. So in the absence of that, the fact that the media and these you know privately run companies can get out there to improve their stock prices and to give people hope, I'm very concerned about because Frankly, I'm still of the opinion mm-hmm. that we're we're headed for some rough times and that the vaccine is not just around the corner. Well, it's nice to give people hope, but he can't give them false hope. And that's the danger of all these announcements. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. So I want to switch gears because we have about 15 minutes and talk about the biggest announcement. Of course, it didn't make big headlines right here in the United States, which is that the uh, now and finally, after 27 years, Mahmoud Abbas, the uh, Palestinian Authority leader, has declared an end uh, to security cooperation with with Israel and the United States, citing the imminent threat of Israeli annexation of parts of the West Bank, And this is a statement from Abbas. He said the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, the the PLO, uh, and the State of Palestine are absolved as of today of all agreements and understandings with the American and Israeli governments and of all the commitments based on these understandings and agreements, including the security ones. For me, the key word is the security because right. uh, because Abbas has threatened to end all agreements and basically he has ended all communications uh, with the United States and Israel. However, we we know that uh, security security coordination uh, between the Palestinian right. Authority and right. the Israelis uh, has continued. Well, well Jamal, I think um, twenty seven years too late. I mean, in the and for for Abu Mazen, I mean, it's it's. I think it's a positive step in terms of the future. I think it's a positive step politically. But come on, Abu Mazen, twenty seven years too late. The 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 catastrophe of the Oslo Agreement, where more Palestinian land has been stolen, more settlements have been been created. Basically, the Israelis and the Americans have acted independently of any coordination or kind of um, kind of negotiation with Palestine, with Palestinians. And now, because you have Pompeo and Netanyahu coming, threatening and probably doing, you know, full annexation of the settlements in the West Bank, 
it it looks it, to me, Jamal. I don't know what your feeling was. You read the 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 kind of papers uh, in in the Arab world, so you can give an analysis. It appeared to me kind of weak. I mean, I I listened to his statement, I watched it, I looked at the subtitles, and it seemed weak to me. What do you think? Well, um, I listened to the speech itself, and I've listened to all the speeches actually that uh, President Abbas has delivered in the past uh, few years. And um, this is not the first time he had uh, made such threats with the exception of the security because he has a very famous speech that he said that the security coordination is holy. He called it holy when he was questioned that we will, you know, he called it the holy. And everybody at the time attacked him and they were very like in shock to say that security coordination and cooperation with the Israelis is a, is, is a red line. Like we will never end in end, end our coordination. And now he's basically walking back uh, these words. Right. However, what I'm saying, he gave the sense of security, you know, and 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 uh, to the Israelis and every and 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 everyone else who is uh, supporting them, uh, like the United States, that no matter what, Israel can do anything she wants, uh, annex more land, uh, invade towns and villages, arrest people. And the security coordination will continue. Right. And that's why this was the weakest point for all his threats to end uh, cooperating with the Israelis or talking to them. It didn't matter for Benjamin Netanyahu as long as the Palestinian security forces continued to protect the illegal colonial settlers there and continued to prevent Palestinians from uh, going into what they call Israel proper and do their dirty work for them on the ground and their police work on the ground. So that that's why... In, in fact, the card that he used just a couple of days ago, talking about the security, he should have used that first. Right. And 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 if you judge from all the previous history and and what happened to the Palestinian Authority, even in times when the United States stopped its financial aid to the uh, to Palestinians, it the one item that they that Congress did not vote to end was the funds that went to the security. Right. And right. so they, they stopped funding schools. They fun, stopped funding hospitals. They stopped funding salaries of other employees or work or infrastructure. But they kept the money going for security because the, the Palestinian Authority is basically doing the police work for the Israelis. And Israel basically and its cohorts at the U.S. Congress... They didn't want to touch that item, right? But here's they, the prop. But here's the problem, Jamal. Uh, politically speaking, and from a point of view of like how one negotiates and and kind of represents for one's people, for Abu Mazen to make the statement now after he's been completely kind of undermined for the last twenty seven years of Oslo. It's just like he made the statement from a position of complete and utter weakness after after the deal was done. It's like it just seemed I don't know what to say. And I'm curious to see what some of the uh, um, analysts have said in the Arab world about this. But, you, 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 you know, I mean, theoretically, you want to negotiate and make these statements from a position of leverage and power. 
and he's making this statement from a position of weakness and lack of power, what impact is this really going to have? So far, zero impact. In fact, Israel has not responded, has not officially responded to his statement. Usually they don't they care. Have, they usually have something to say. Even the United States has not officially responded. Pompeo said something, well, yeah, that's uh, the, the Palestinians keep doing the same thing. They don't want to sit uh, around the negotiation table, which we know this is, uh, they take from the old... Uh, the old uh, playbooks. The old playbooks and the myth that Abba Iban, the former Israeli foreign minister, who once said that Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So they keep like as if they were given an opportunity. They, they've been eating that cake, leaving crumbs to the Palestinians every time they say, well, you don't want to negotiate. We don't have a partner. So Mahmoud Abbas was actually the first person and he should have called their bluff in 1993, exactly. not, not in uh, 2020. When he said, okay, which by the way, this is not the, he, 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 at the time, no one, uh, not too many Palestinians supported that stance, giving basically a big chunk of historic Palestine, signing a peace agreement, uh, allowing uh, Israel to control the borders, uh, basically creating a de facto uh, uh, state without an army, without sovereignty. He went through with this. Right. And despite all these, the Israelis basically thumbed their nose at Mahmoud Abbas and, and people around him, and I'm talking people meaning Palestinians on the ground, others were waiting to see where is that dividend that he promised us that peace is going to bring to Palestinians. Their kids are still getting arrested. Their kids are still getting killed. Their water is getting stolen. Their land is getting stolen. Settlers are uprooting olive trees, ancient olive trees from their lands. No peace, no prosperity. Only to the Israelis, the Israelis who are walking around the streets in Tel Aviv, they no longer worry from Palestinian resistance because uh, Mahmoud Abbas and his security forces made sure to stop that. And at the same time, it's out of sight, out of mind. That's right. They have Gaza under lockdown. And they have basically the rest of the West Bank with with multiple controls of of checkpoints and so forth. So actually, Israel has been prospering uh, until the coronavirus, just like the rest of the world. They have a very vibrant economy. They have a um, a vibrant uh, Silicon style valley uh, going on from Tel Aviv and up north from that area. And the Palestinians are the ones who have been suffering and living under apartheid conditions. So he's back now to the wall. He has nothing to offer. And he's saying, I'm going to do something after 27 years. It's a little bit... It's, a, <laughs> too, it's too little, too late, Jamal. Too little, too late. And I don't know what he is um, betting on. I think like he bet, he's betting like if we stop the security... Something will happen which will really reflect badly on the Palestinians because people have had it. And then, um, you know, uh, uh, Palestinians might start attacking Israelis or vice versa and whatever. And then mayhem will erupt. And then he can say to prove himself uh, and to say, you see, we brought you security for 27 years. Now we don't have our security forces around to protect the settlers. I mean, this is what he's doing. He is offering a service. Mahmoud Abbas wants to offer a service to protect now the number, the shocking number, 900,000 
900,000 illegal colonial settlers in the West Bank. Right. When he came to power, they were under 100,000. That's exactly right, Jamal. And so we've seen under Abu Mazen's leadership a steady erosion of, you know, everything having to do with Palestinian sovereignty, Palestinian political power, Palestinian economic power. It's all gone into the, I hate to say this, but it's gone into the toilet completely. I I don't see what his next step or end game is, Jamal. There's no election coming up. The Palestinian economy is in terrible uh, shape right now, especially in Jerusalem right now, which is essentially shut down the economy. Gaza is still under siege and doesn't have any kind of viable economic uh, you know, progress going on in, in any shape, way, or form. Now the Israelis and the Americans, Jamal, are ignoring Palestinians. We don't have a political address. I, I'm afraid that this is among the the lowest points politically that we have faced since Oslo. It's been a steady decline. We've talked about the death of Oslo for so many years now, Jamal. This is this is really a very, very low point when you think about it right now. Yeah, well, the problem is that his timing couldn't, couldn't have been worse. I Nobody mean, cares. No one. I mean, we used to talk about how the, the uh, so-called Arab Spring has overshadowed the events in Palestine. So people were paying attention to what's going on in Syria, for example, and so forth. And now the entire world is uh, facing this pandemic. They don't you care. Have they don't yeah. care. They have their own issues. Economies are collapsing. Countries are under lockdown. Travel, uh, you know. So, so for him to make this declaration on top of everything else, and and it's just like it's just like the worst timing. I mean, I mean, I'm not even talking about his. He has waited 27 years, but he he picked the worst year, absolutely, and the worst moment. That if we're talking about a priority list, a global priority list, and if the Palestinian uh, uh, was like ranked as uh, whatever number item number eighty on that list, it's now item number eight thousand on that list. So, so, th so that's that's the situation here. Uh, in fact, I mean, we talked about it, and, and other people came up with suggestions before talking about since Israel is moving towards apartheid, just like dismantle the Palestinian Authority and let Israel be responsible. For everything. Yeah, for everything, because that's part of the international agreements uh, yeah, and, and, and the responsibility of an occupier. Let's go to what we spoke about last week and what we've been speaking about for many years here on Jamal. This might be the perfect opportunity for the one-state solution to start building momentum and to start going forward. This, I mean, with all the craziness of Palestinian leadership inadequacy, maybe this is an opportunity to take hold of this concept and to build on it for the future. One, well, pers it, one person, one vote. Let's just. Well, well, it is the reality. I mean, we it, it has been the reality for many years. But the spoken reality. Let's make it the spoken you reality. You are you are talking about a one state under Israeli control 
from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. They control everything. And But the fact is, you don't have a binational state. It's a binational existence under apartheid. You know, right. we, you, know you don't have the, a democracy. The, this is the, the, the fallacy that uh, Israel and the United States try to create around the right. world. Israel is a democracy. It's nonsense. It, you know, there is nothing democratic about Israel uh, that anyone can um, attest to. Uh, all what you have to do, all that you have to do is for someone to go on the ground, just visit a couple of, of Palestinian cities, or for that matter, just go to Jerusalem, you know, the so-called uh, United Capital of Israel, and look at the Palestinian neighborhoods versus the Jewish neighborhoods and see if you can find a trace of democracy in that. Well, on that sobering note, Jamal, we've come to another end of Arab Talk here on KPOO 89.5 FM here in San Francisco, where Arab Talk is continuing to produce our Arab Talk show from our remote locations sheltering in place in Northern California. We thank our listeners and our viewers for tuning in again, Jamal. You know, all of our shows can be can be viewed on from our website and our podcast site, ArabTalkRadio.com. They can check out the live simulcasts on your Facebook page, Jamal Dejani too. And we have to continue reporting on all of these topics, whether it's the coronavirus or what I think, you know, and I'm kind of hopeful because I think that this could usher in a new era, era of Palestinian kind of political strength now that we have completely, for how many times now, killed off Oslo. Well, uh, we will talk to you next week. Uh, stay healthy. Stay and, safe. And stay and do, safe. And don't drink bleach, please. <laughs> okay. See you next week. See you next week.